In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And today I'm joined by Master Sommelier, Evan Goldstein, who's the president of Full Circle Wine Solutions. And we are here to talk about, I mean, I know a wine region that you're passionate about, Evan, and a place that is definitely high on my list of to visit uh, in terms of wine regions in, in the world, uh, but I have enjoyed the wines from, and that's uh, Alentejo. So Evan, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Happy to be here with you, Zach, and looking forward to chatting about uh, all things Alan Tejanu today with you. Excellent. And I will uh, remind listeners right at the top here that uh, you and I and uh, my co-host Adam Teeter uh, chatted about the region um, in December of 2020. And so we'll, we'll link to that in the show description. Well, that, that'll be a great reference if you want a little more of the kind of nitty gritty of some of the varieties and styles um, that define this region. We'll, we'll give a little overview, of course, for, for those of you who either uh, didn't memorize that episode, shame on you or um, don't want to go back and listen to it. Also, shame on you. But uh, we'll focus a little more on some other topics for this conversation. So that said, um, Evan, for those who aren't familiar with Alentejo, where are we? Yeah, so Alentejo um, sits in a fairly large chunk of Portugal. Portugal, if you sort of back up a little bit, is sort of the little piece of fruit that the larger Pac-Man called Spain <laughs> surrounds on all sides. So uh, it's literally got Spain to the north of it, um, water on the other parts, and uh, and Spain to the uh, to the east of it as well too. The Alentejo itself covers about a third of the country, located essentially east and south of of Lisbon, and going almost all the way down to. To the, to the water. Um, and it's big, but it's also relatively sparse. It's home to only about a tenth of the population. So as we're going to learn and we talk about um, topics like sustainability and climate change and all that other fun stuff later on, it's important to note that that um, it is sparsely populated. Uh, that said, it represents approximately 12% of all of the area under vine in the country. So it's significant and um, just a little bit south of 20% of the entire wine production of the, uh-huh. the country too. So it's a very, very important wine region. It's beautiful and home to lots of flora, fauna, and and other types of uh, wildlife that we don't see in many other parts of uh, the country. Gotcha. And I think we'll get into some of that kind of the the environment and the and sustainability in a moment. But but from a wine centric perspective what are we talking about? You know, you, you kind of gave some numbers in terms of um, how it fits mm-hmm. into Portugal's broader production. But in terms of what kinds of wines do we find from uh, Alentejo in terms of either styles, varieties, categories, wh- however it makes sense to you to organize it? Like, what would people tend to find um, either here in the States on the shelf or if they were to visit? Yeah, I, I, good questions here. Um, first and foremost, uh, again, just sort of giving a little bit of uh, insight into where we're going. We're definitely in the interior. So we're not along the coast, either to okay. the west or um, close to the water down to the south. So it's a very Mediterranean climate. It's a very warm climate. Um, and if you've been there in the summer, um, you'll know that it makes Las Vegas look like the Arctic, but it's really, <laughs> really warm in the summer. And because of that, and because of wine growing uh, conditions, as you can imagine it's, it's uh, table wine, Driven, They do produce small amounts of fortified wine, but it's basically table wine driven, very little bubbly and uh, red wine driven at that um, because of these temperatures uh, being what they are. Some of that temperature is mitigated by either a little bit of inflow uh, from the ocean to the west that comes through the south and some by altitude. But other than that, it's a lot of undulating hills and a lot of warmth. So it's it's literally like over, God, 80% red and then the balance being white. There's just a kiss 
of rosé. They are not really into rosé wines, which really have always puzzled me there. But um, And the wine styles themselves are generally blends, um, which is to say you don't see a lot of individual single variety wines labeled, not mm-hmm. to say that there aren't some, but most of the wines are, are blends, either originally because of just the way vineyards were planted, but also over time by style, what people like to make, what people produce, and what people like to drink. I think one of the things that oftentimes folks don't know is that, um, you know, if there was a People's Choice Awards for a Portuguese wine, Alentejo would win it. I mean, they represent literally almost 40% of all of the wines consumed within the country. Oh, okay. And and has that sort of historically been the, I don't want to say the, the role of Alentejo as a wine producing region, but it has it been mostly domestic focused in terms of its production? Yeah, it really has been. You know, I, what's interesting to see is if you go to restaurants throughout the country and you ask for historically, you know, the, the Vina da Mesa, the, the House Red or the House White, even if you weren't in Alentejo, there was a good shot that the uh, wine that they would serve you would be uh, from Alentejo. And a lot of that is just because it's always been a workhorse of a region for the country before it started really moving towards a more premium um, uh, direction in the last five to 10 years. But also it just produces a style of wines. The reds are sort of scrumptious, full-bodied, rich, easygoing, not super hard, delicious. And the whites, uh, these sort of blends are also very texturally richer and fuller in flavor and not necessarily with a lot of the hard, sharp edges that you would find in places. This is like, say, the Mino on the coast where you're much closer to the to the water. Gotcha. And just because I enjoy hearing you say things uh, in Portuguese and I can't do it uh, very well, what are what are some varieties that even if what people are mostly going to find are blends, what are some of the kind of key varieties in the region? Yeah, for, for, for white wines, the, the, the most important grape variety, which sort of manages the hot temperatures, but also maintains varietal character well, is one called Antão Weich, spelled A-N-T-A-O and then V-A-Z. Antão Weich was apparently a gentleman at some point in the time who was the source of the uh, plant material that propagated throughout the region over time. But there's also um, Arinto, a grape that's grown. You also see Alvarino there. But Anton Weich would really be the driver. Um, Sirio would be another grape that you would see there. All of these, of course, being things that you would rush out to the store and find. But again, with most Alentejo white wines, they're just going to be listed as Branco or white because they are going to be blends. The reds, you're going to find um, grapes like uh, Alicante Boucher, uh, which is a very thick, inky grape wine. You're going to find Torriga Franca. You'll find a little bit of Torriga Nacional. You'll find some Alfrochero and other things. And once again, generally blended style reds, uh, easygoing, but obviously the big dog there, if, if the wines are primarily Alicante Boucher, uh, they're going to be inky, dark, and, and can be reasonably tannic. Gotcha. And then sort of lastly, before we start kind of talking more about sustainability and looking to the future and all those things. I wanted to ask a question that I I don't think we totally talked about last time we chatted and is one thing that is always interesting to me when we talk on the podcast or when I talk to other people um, and talk about some wine regions in in Europe and about kind of these wines that often have had more – They've been more kind of domestically focused for just, just, you know, for whatever set of reasons, either because there wasn't a broad international market for their wines uh, until relatively recently or things have changed in the region or whatever. And, and people kind of often come up and say, Oh, you know, here's the, here are the classic dishes of, in this case, you know, maybe either of Alentejo or of Portugal more broadly. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, you know, for, for wines like this, when we're talking about enjoying them here in the United States where, where you and I are, 
what are some foods that or dishes that you think pair well with some of these wines that might kind of not require someone to not that there's anything wrong with looking at Portuguese cuisine. Obviously, there's lots of delicious food there, but just in terms of food that that might not necessarily immediately um, spring to mind for someone with with wines like this, if they're curious to check them out, but don't necessarily have a Portuguese cookbook lying around or whatever. <laughs> right, because there's so many Portuguese restaurants dotting the United States exactly. everywhere we go. Well, what's interesting about the, the food of this region, just to give you sort of a, um, and I'll, I'll I'll bring this on my promise, is that the food here is to me the quintessential comfort food mm. of Portugal. So there's a lot of stews. There's a lot of rich braises. There's a lot of um, uh, of dishes that are both hearty and rich and comforting because although it can be hotter than hell in the summer, it can be colder than cold in the winter too. And there's not a lot of tweezers. There's not a lot of fancy ingredients. There's not a lot of, you know, Michelin chefs and stuff like that. And because of that, you know, the, the foods of this region are beloved throughout the country. So you'll find Alentejano dishes served not only in that region, but around the country as well too. And I think why what I what I like about that is number one, who doesn't enjoy rich comfort food, be it a <laughs> roast chicken or a pot of chili or whatever. I sure do. Yeah, I would think of that as being sort of the kinds of foods one would find in Alentejo. And ergo the kinds of foods that over time, if you know what grows together goes together, can then be extrapolated into the kinds of foods I would enjoy with them here. So a lot of basic comfort food, whether it's, you know, frankly burgers and pizza to roast chicken or chili con carne, uh, to, you know, a, a very simple um, you know, braise of, of fishes or whatever, something like that, are all going to go well with these wines. They don't demand sort of the the uh, threading the needle of complexity of layers of flavors to pair well with the idiosyncrasies of that, you know, cool climate Pinot Noir that is as tight as a drumhead in terms of the flavor profile. Um, the wines here are approachable. They're easy. The people of Alentejo are approachable and they're easy. And as such, I find that the foods that they go with, not to say that they can't stand uh, next to a very uh, rich and complex um, tweezer assembled dish, but they certainly don't demand it. Very cool. Yeah. And I was, you said chili and that was like the first thing that I was thinking about as like a great fit for some of those kind of more warmer climate, full body, but maybe not overly tannic uh, reds that, that just is like such a great, great pairing. Yeah, any you know anything that you can serve, honestly, Zach, in one pot is going to be fine. <laughs> be it minestrone, be it chili, be it you know chili verde, whatever you want to do, are all going to work well with these kinds of wines. Fantastic. So you know we've we've talked about this whole um, you know one of the most important sort of climactic elements of Alentejo, and that's the heat. And I think that so much of what we're going to talk about for the rest of this podcast, and, and in so many ways, is going to be centered around this notion of. The region and the growers and the winemakers in the region really kind of confronting not just this, the, the heat that is just the sort of natural condition in the area, but the very real threat of and challenges of climate change, you know, either intensifying or in some ways, you know, altering not just the total temperature, but maybe when the heat comes and how long it stays and what else it's, <laughs> what else it comes with and, and just all of that. And, and, I want to first maybe just for some of our listeners who might not be super well versed in in understanding why what some of the challenges are of viticulture in a really hot region maybe you can just on a general sense and whether it's specific to Alentejo or more broadly kind of explain to listeners 
you know, what is it about a really hot growing region that makes growing grapes challenging? Well, probably there's two things that are involved here. Number one, sort of certainly just the ample amounts of heat over time are not going to be particularly healthy for grapevines. You know, too much warmth uh, towards the end of the season is going to shrivel up and dry your grapes and force one, if one is legally able to do so, to basically plump them up through irrigation, which changes flavor profile and balance. Um, over the course of the years, if, if particularly when vines are young, um, it can wither the vines and be very unhospitable uh, to them. But usually hand in hand with um, ridiculous amounts of heat um, come lack of water, um, mm-hmm. particularly in Mediterranean climates. And what a lot of people probably could surmise based on the picture that we're painting for them is this heat um, and lack of rainfall makes the area really vulnerable. It makes it vulnerable to not only um, grapes and um, a lot of crops being treated poorly, but also to, um, you know, people having to adjust their lifestyles to mm-hmm. um, certain flora and fauna um, being, um, you know, being made to be focused on because if you don't, they'll go the way of, I would say the polar bear, but that's cold, but you know, yeah. no pun intended, but it, it can be a very, very challenging thing on the bright side. If there's an upside to having warmer, drier climates, it, it, it is, it does enable um, people to go for lack of better words, more sustainable, more organic and such, because they don't have to, you know, dispense as many pesticides and use as many uh, treatments um, to do things that naturally happen um, in the vineyard because of the, the warmth and lack of moisture. Yeah, that's a good point that that while there are detriments or at least challenges that you said with with heat and, and dryness, there are obviously benefits. And yeah, the, that lack of, of rot and pest pressure is certainly part of it. And then, you know, to this question of, of water and the sort of challenges of it, I, I've often thought that something that doesn't get talked about a lot in and or enough in sustainability conversations and in conversations about wine more generally is you know people often talk about at a sort of superficial level like well you know grapes uh grapevines don't require as much water as many other crops and i think that's undeniably true there are certainly many more uh water intensive crops but one of the other things that's true is like grape growing can in certain places and in certain ways can still be very water intensive or winemaking and grape growing. And I think until relatively recently, the world over growers might be careful about how much water they, if they're in a place where they are allowed to irrigate, they might be careful about how much water they apply to their vines, but, but might be profligate with water in other ways. And one thing that's really interesting to me, and, and we can sort of use this as a springboard to talk about the wines of Alentejo sustainability program is kind of how much it seems like there's emphasis on not just some of the elements of sustainability, like organic viticulture that, that tend to spring to mind, but some very sort of maybe mundane, but important things like recapturing wastewater. Absolutely. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. And, you know, I think most people with a very broad and inaccurate brush like to think of, you know, what am I doing in the vineyard and how much compost am I using, et cetera, et cetera, when they think about sustainability. But sustainability, you know, use of water. You know, I think when it all goes down, we sit around and talk about how oil is the big thing and and all that. You know, it's all going to go down to water in the end. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, doing things such as, as straightforward as installing water meters and encouraging lower water consumption consumption um, and giving people goals of, you know, like we're used to here in California where I live, where, you know, they tell you to voluntarily, you know, even when it starts to rain, like it has been in the last week or two, nevertheless, continue to conserve 10 to 15% of water. That's sort of um, something that they've been doing for a while. Um, it was not always the case in Alentejo. Um, so they're encouraging people to do that. You know, some 
over 60% of the members of the uh, organization that we'll talk about later, Wines of Alentasia Sustainability now do that um, significantly and have really dropped their water. But even, you know, people can talking about it, like, how do you increase um, recycling? How do you convert organic wastewater and reuse it again? How do you encourage people not only to think about this in their day-to-day agriculture, but how do you then take it home, adding in mm-hmm. a human component to it so that you're practicing safe and um, re- re- regenerative, if you will, um, water policies in the confines of your home, not simply just at work? Sure. And, you know, I think you made a, a really good point there, which is that, it's, it's all well and good for a sort of a region or a body to say, you know, here's what our goals are. But uptake is really the most important thing, right? And and goals are great, but if people aren't really – if wineries, if growers, et cetera, aren't working to achieve them, then I think it's kind of a – you know, it's, it's sort of, it can be empty. And, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about uh, the Wines of Alentejo sustainability program and, and kind of how, to me at least, and, and you know more than I do, it, it does not seem to be – frankly, for lack of a better word, sort of an empty uh, signifier. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. You know, uh, Wines of Alentejo Sustainability Program, which goes by the acronym of WASP, which I don't know whether I like it or not. I don't know if <laughs> WASPs are good for sustainability or not. Seems to me they probably don't sound like they are, but nevertheless, it's a nice acronym. It was launched um, in 2015, and it's a voluntary membership program. People don't have to do there. And they use data, you know, ample amounts of data that they're able to secure from the uh, Organisation Internationale du Vin, the OIV, um, to sort of help look at um, creating best practices in sustainability programs. Now, first of all, they didn't just pull this out of a proverbial crackerjack box or the Portuguese equivalent thereof, but they took a look at, you know, who was doing it well. And I think if we look at, um, you know, at, at North Stars in sustainability around the world, the two that really come to mind for me are Chile, uh, who mm-hmm. have certainly been doing it for a long time. I know you've talked about that recently. Have, um, yeah. And California, who do mm-hmm. a really good job. And if you look at a microcosm of, uh, for example, the Lodi Rules Program, I mean, they're really up there at the top, although Napa and Sonoma and all the other counties do a tremendous job too. So after doing a lot of research and pulling together a lot of the data that they were able to through the OIV and then coordinating this, both with the producers, but also the university in Evora, um, they put together this organization and all these various tenants of following to, to, um, to make this happen. I mean, I think that they felt very strongly that not only embracing sustainability was important and everybody's doing it these days, but it's a necessity for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they can't go on uh, doing things the way we've been doing or they are going to go um, the wrong way. So um, they really started hard. Um, they had 96 members of, of vineyards and wineries by the end of the first year. Today, they've got, you know, well over um, 400. I think the number's about 430 right now, representing um, wineries and wine growers there. And together, if you add those up, it covers literally 50% plus of all of the vineyard land and all the main players in the country have engaged um, in the program. And um, it's been an uh, you know undeniable success. So I want to throw out a, a, a theory that I'm curious if you might agree with or, or potentially disagree with either way makes for compelling listening, I think. And it struck me when I was sort of planning for this episode that places like Alentejo and, and to some extent, maybe Chile and California, as you mentioned, they're sort of at the the forefront of the sustainability movement. And as you said, especially in Alentejo, out of necessity and, you know, maybe some high mindedness as well, but, but necessity is, is always going to be a very powerful motivating force. And I was wondering if in some ways we'll, we'll see something like what we saw in some other elements of grape growing and winemaking, um, where 
a lot of developments in, I think, the 80s and 90s um, out of Australia in terms of just them managing a really you know, limited labor force and having to learn more about mechanization in a way that wasn't, that could still allow for producing really high quality wines and some things, you know, viticultural and uh, winemaking practices to deal with some of the climactic challenges that are similar, but also somewhat different in Australia. And now we're even getting, um, you know, some of our most advanced research on things like fire damage and smoke taint comes out of Australia because they've been dealing with it longer. It, it, is that sound like a reasonable parallel or am I kind of out on a limb here. No, no, I think I think you're spot on. I mean, we pointed out at the out, at the outset of our conversation that you know this is an area that has got lots of land, but not very many people there. So they mm-hmm. they have uh, become increasingly dependent on, on on some forms of of mechanization, and it could be as as geeky, if you will, as using you know sprayers um, when you do have to to spray sulfur, or whatever that that have like drift recover technology to capture and recycle uh, that spray mm-hmm. drift again, and that whole sustainability thing or reducing water consumption, not only by actually having to do it, but also using, you know, dry cleaning uh, equipment technology, which means that you don't actually have to use per se water to do some of those things. And those are, are people uh, dependent. They are, um, they are also resource dependent. And the fact that large distances between areas, large vineyards of which are called erdajis in this part of the world or her- heritage vineyards um, don't necessarily have the same sort of labor to um, person uh, to vineyard size um, equation there that allows, you know, the equivalence of, you know, Juan Valdez to go there and manicure and pick each grape individually <laughs> when it's ripe. You know, you are going out there um, with some mechanization and with some sort of more, I don't want to say, um, you know, an industrial approach, but that they are, it's a bigger area, it produces a lot of wine. Yeah. And, and I'm curious too, you know, we, we talked about labor, a little bit and in terms of, you know, the, the challenges that come from maybe having a sort of broad geographic region without a huge population. And we've talked a little bit about, uh, we've talked, certainly talked about water and, and other things, but, you know, what about energy? Um, which is, I think, you know, kind of uh, along with the sort of thought that water will be, you know, continue to be a persistent challenge. I think energy usage or the just limiting wh- how energy intensive or even potentially looking at energy generation in various ways. Like what, what is going on in Alentejo in terms of that? Yeah, no, um, great, great point to bring up. Well, you know, things that are going to seem relatively commonplace, um, you're going to go, oh my God, I can't believe people weren't doing that, um, have become more normal. So it might go without saying to you and me that like insulation of your pipes or insulation of your tanks or using, um, you know, LED lighting and, you know, installing Boku um, solar panels because you have some so much sunlight would mm-hmm. be rigor and normal. And it is becoming that way. And obviously, if you're starting from a relatively low base, to bring it up quickly, the numbers are, of course, extraordinary. But it wasn't, once again, always done that way. So I think there is incredible sensitivity uh, towards that to um, reducing energy consumption. Um, I don't know how much Certainly, I don't have the data to talk about, sure. you know, regeneration and regenerative energies, if you will. But certainly reducing energy is something that's um, very much top of mind for people as well as, you know, obviously, um, you know, greening and, and recycling and all those other things. But a point you brought up that I do think is worth um, bringing up again is the so-called human component of, mm-hmm. of what sustainability is all about. And one of the things that you could probably imagine that if you're in a part of the world where where people are, are, are sparse and scarce is you risk 
brain drain and you risk mm. migration to the cities where the jobs are and stuff. So you really need to think about how do I maintain the sustainability of the population and the labor force here. So they do things through this WASP program that I think are outstanding, such as like assisting and creating school programming for the children of the people that are there. Because if you're out working in the vineyards or working in the wineries um, and you don't have support at home to pick up and get your kids off to where they need to be for school or support them in their school, um, that's the case. Or in firefighting as well, too. A lot of mm-hmm. these people have volunteer fire um, and emergency services, certainly donating um, through proceeds that are pulled from the WASP program to charity events and and also just giving back to the community and that making sure that people value and show, show great pride in wine as a significant uh, product of the community along with, you know, cork and olive oils and, and things like that so that families are encouraged to take pride and um, literally encourage future generations um, to to enjoy and take pride in their in their local wineries. Yeah, well, and I think that was a, a really important point that I was going to mention too, which is that part of, you know, part of the reason for doing things like this is, of course, like, you know, there's a, in some cases, there might be a financial incentive, whether it's to save money um, up front, or maybe to recognize the potential value proposition either now or in the future for, you know, wines that are more, you know, truly sustainable, um, that they may have a, a marketplace advantage. But it's also that like, for a lot of places in the world these days, and I think Alentejo is no different, like there's a tremendous pride in in the wine industry, but also recognition that pride alone will not keep it viable. Absolutely. And I think you see that I remember, you know, when I was down in Argentina years ago and was talking with a couple of producers down there that literally created, you know, working daycare centers on the property at the winery where the people who worked with them and the vineyard workers and all that could drop their kids during the day um, so that they could, again, create the sustainable human ecosystem within that um, and enjoy their work and take pride in their work um, and know that work had their back, if you will, in a way that another industry that's a bit more cutthroat wouldn't. Yeah. Very good point. I think the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Evan, or wanted to chat about is is sort of this idea of the portability or the, um, you know, sort of the exporting, not just of the wines, but of this, you know, emphasis on sustainability. So much of the conversation that's happening in, in the world and, and in our little corner of it, wine, is about these sort of forward-looking programs and understanding the importance of sustainability. But also sometimes I hear from from some, you know, producers or even regions, like, you know, we kind of don't we kind of don't know where to start, right? It's mm-hmm. such a, it can feel like such a big topic. And I think one thing that's really kind of cool about WASP and what's been done is, you know, it's, it's only now, you know, six and a half, seven years old. And, and yet, you know, it seems to have had a lot of uptake. It's, it's had a lot of success. And, and are you seeing, you know, kind of interest from other parts of the world to be like, Hey, what, let, let's look at what they're doing in Alentejo as, as maybe that every last piece of it isn't, you know, can't be transported to our region for, for whatever set of reasons, you know, different climate, different, uh, you know, cultural demands, et cetera, but, but that there's, there's pieces of this that we can very much learn from. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, what's that old expression, great ideas don't care who had them. And if somebody's doing <laughs> something good, we should all benefit from it. Um, and I remember again, just as a quick aside, and then I'll jump right back into this, you know, often times it takes a single region to lead a nation. So I remember sure. being um, in Australia, to use your point earlier, and, and spending some time with um, in the McLaren Vale. And the McLaren Vale has led the sustainability biodynamic um, 
uh, and all of those things for that entire country uh, in the same way that Alentejo, I think, has been doing it not only for Portugal, but for Europe in terms of leading by example, having protagonists within the organization that live and breathe uh, the philosophies and the holistic um, tenets of what's going on there. To your, to your point, you know, I think that WASP has now become a model for others in the sense that the, the network that they're making is not only important to Portugal, but they were, for example, you know, one of 15 winners out of 200 applications uh, for the Europe, European Commission's European Rural Innovation Award just a few mm. years ago. And in 2020, um, they went on to you know, get even more of that for the Rural Innovation Ambassadors Program and national recognition and all of that. So I do think that they have been um, an absolute leader within Portugal, but also in Europe, you know, to the mm-hmm. point now where they're, they're literally partnering up with various other certifying bodies around uh, Europe, Sativa, um, Bureau Veritas, Certus, et cetera, in helping work together collectively. And in fact, are doing some work, I now believe, with some consortios in Italy uh, to share um, findings and share technology. Because, you know, we all win when um, best practices are shared, to your point, across borders. Excellent. Well, Evan, this has been really interesting. Um, you know, all the more reason to to be interested in in not just enjoying the wines um, of Alentejo, although of course that's a good starting point, but also uh, eventually visiting the region and you know, hopefully not frying or freezing. Uh, maybe I'll pick a, a shoulder season, but uh, <laughs> but you know, I can I can can always uh, sit in the shade. <laughs> Absolutely, and the cork trees are good for that. And just one last thing as we sort of sure. close this topic that I thought would be important, and we don't talk about this enough. But you know, if you talk about uh, cork, of course, you talk mm-hmm. about Portugal, and if you talk about cork in Portugal, of course, you talk about Alan. Alentejo, where lion's share of cork trees are actually planted. Um, and what some people don't think about there is cork trees, without question, are the most carbon retaining tree of any kind in the country. They literally pick up three to five times more carbon out of the air, um, CO2, than any other part there. And the 10 million tons of carbon uh, dioxide are sequestered uh, by cork trees in Portugal annually, which in the grand scheme of sustainability and climate change is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, Evan, this was a really interesting conversation and, and an important one too, I think, and look forward to seeing what uh, what further developments and you know, kind of best practices emerge from Alentejo. And as I said, of course, enjoying the wines in the meantime. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for uh, having me on the show. And I wish everybody out there good drinking in 2022. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.